You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Bonnie Arswega, an instructor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and neonatologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, on behalf of her co-authors to discuss their study, National Variability in Neonatal Resuscitation Practices at the Limit of Viability. Birth at the gestational age limits of viability, usually defined as delivery between 22 and 25 weeks gestational age, complicates approximately 1% of all pregnancies, but involves delivery room challenges beyond the care of the premature neonate. There is no clear medical, social, or legal definition of human viability, and as delivery room care practices for these extremely premature infants are not regulated by professional associations, management of the newborn in these deliveries can vary widely. The objective of this study is to describe regional variations in resuscitation practices of periviable infants and to determine if physicians' decisions are based on their own knowledge of policies or laws or by their own religious, moral, or other beliefs. To address these questions, the author surveyed members of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on perinatal medicine. The survey sought to determine the earliest gestational age for resuscitation, the earliest gestational age where they would always attempt resuscitation, and then multiple scenarios to determine specific factors that most influence the delivery room practices. 637 complete surveys were analyzed. The majority of the respondents were attending physicians in practice for greater than 10 years, and 53% worked in an academic setting. Most self-described themselves as Caucasian. 70% were familiar with their local legal limits of termination and definitions of viability. 68% described themselves as pro-choice. The youngest age, the majority, 68%, of respondents were willing to attempt full resuscitation overall as 23 weeks with 10 to 12% indicating 22 weeks. The majority of respondents selected 25 weeks estimated gestational age, 51%, as the earliest gestational age where practitioners would resuscitate even with the parents' objections. Regional variation was noted with statistical differences between northeast and west coast regions and midwestern regions, with the northeast and west coast regions less likely to resuscitate a 22-week infant. In addition, regions of the Deep South and Texas have more practitioners who consider 24 weeks to be obligatory for resuscitation compared to Northeast and West Coast regions. In delivery room scenarios, the estimated fetal weight significantly affected the resuscitation decisions. In addition, in most cases, the provider would comply with parental wishes regarding resuscitation. Only after 26 weeks did respondents state they would resuscitate greater than 90% of the time. Finally, the factors that most influenced providers' resuscitation decisions included parental request, 33%, and infant appearance in the delivery room, 38%. Dr. Arzuega, thank you again for joining us today. Can you briefly describe your motivation behind this study? Absolutely. We all know that premature delivery in the United States is a major uh, health concern. About half a percent of all babies born are born before 27 weeks gestation, but about 40, almost 50 percent of infant mortality is actually taken up by these same very small premature babies. And so one of the motivations for 
studying the resuscitation practices of neonatologists throughout the United States was to see what sort of factors came into play when making these very ethically challenging and also emotionally charged decisions. Many times parents come in, women come in in labor, they were not expecting to deliver a premature baby, let alone one of extreme prematurity, which traditionally is defined as less than 25 weeks. And so many of these very complex decisions are made in an environment where you don't have much time to deliberate over all the different variables and factors that are involved. And you are also, like I said, in a, an environment that's very emotionally challenged for the parents as well as for the providers. And so our main question was, how do providers go about making these decisions? What sort of factors interplay with these decisions? And how may we better be able to provide counseling and also care for these babies and their families as well. Historically, viability has been defined both from a medical standpoint with the advancing technology, but also from a legal standpoint, mostly in the abortion legislature of the United States. It has been very closely linked with definitions of viability. And that has sort of evolved over the past 20th century and now into the 21st century. And so it's sort of also when we talk about viability, it's sort of a moving target. And so attitudes and opinions are, are constantly changing. And so we really wanted to start to look at how we can better, as clinicians on the ground, pinpoint that part of viability and provide better care for these infants and their families. When you were designing your study and setting up the surveys, what did you think were the most important outcome measures that you were looking at in your study? Well, our primary outcomes in the study were resuscitation or not resuscitation of babies at what we call the threshold of viability or the time period of periviability. And that's been defined in various different papers and by various professional societies as anywhere from the lowest I've seen as 20 weeks through about 25 weeks and six days. And so with the primary outcome being resuscitation by a neonatologist or not, or comfort care and withholding of active resuscitation measures, we wanted to look at what main factors were involved in that, whether it be birth weight, gestational age by itself, sex or gender of the infant, the parent's wishes, and whether or not the infant was product of a spontaneous pregnancy or in vitro fertilization. And we wanted to see how all of these different factors interplayed with our outcome of resuscitation. There's been a lot of literature over the past decade or two looking at all of these different factors. And what has been found is that a lot of this decision making is made taking things such as birth weight gestational age, the appearance of the infant at birth into account along with what the parents wanted as far as resuscitation for their infant. And so we wanted to look at the interplay between these sort of clinical factors with both what the parents desired or not desired, but also the factors that may play into a clinician's subconscious, such as in vitro fertilization or unplanned pregnancy or one that was spontaneous. And so the dynamic of that has not truly been studied. Like I said, there are a lot of different factors that have been studied, but it's the answer to the question of why people may do the things that they do in the situation of a periviable birth has not been clearly defined. And so different guidelines from different professional societies 
mainly the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have sort of alluded to these individual factors that can play a role in decision making in the delivery room, but they really leave it up to the clinician. And they really emphasize in their statements and in their guidelines that each case should be individualized and that the clinician needs to take sort of all of these factors into account when making a decision about whether to resuscitate or to withhold medical care from a baby born at 22, 23, 24 weeks gestation. So at the end of your analysis, what did your data suggest were the most important factors directing providers' resuscitation decisions? So when we asked providers what the most important factors were in their own personal decisions, a number of things came up that were pretty interesting. Overall, about 33% or a third of people said that what the parent's desires were was the number one factor in their decision-making tree when it came to a peri-viable birth. After that, there was a number of factors that all sort of combined into what we say, you know, the appearance of the infant. So gestational age, the appearance of the infant at birth, whether they, you know, seemed active were trying to take spontaneous breath versus, you know, being sort of limp and, and lifeless, what the skin looked like, what the, if the eyelids were fused or not. So all of those sort of different factors combined, and that made up about 38% of people who said that those factors in combination were their main decision-making factor in the delivery room. And so what we found was that most providers will follow what the American Academy of Pediatrics and ACOG have both put out in their guidelines when looking at individual factors, they will look at their clinical judgment as far as what the baby looks like at birth and then also take into consideration the wishes of the parents when it comes to resuscitation, which has sort of been what has been promoted by our professional societies as the most appropriate approach to these periviability. I found it interesting that appearance at delivery was such a prominent director of resuscitation plans. Is there other literature to suggest that immediate appearance predicts long-term outcome or survival better than suspected gestational age or birth weight? It's a complex question, actually. It's one that seems very simple at the outset, but when you look at it a little bit more deeply, it's actually much more complex. We know that things such as APGAR scores and the first hour or two of life of an extremely premature infant do not, in fact, predict long-term outcomes. That being said, things such as still undergoing cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, in the delivery room at five minutes of life predicts poor outcome in the infant later on. So there are some factors that we can say for sure will let us predict what the outcome of these babies are going to be, but unfortunately, it's not cut and dry, it's not set in stone, and a lot of ethicists and neonatologists actually in the community have started advocating for more of what they call a, a trial of therapy, where they would lean towards active resuscitation in the delivery room and then see how the infant does over the next 48 to 72 hours to get a much better prediction later on after that trial period to really be able to say, we think that this infant is going to do well or we think that this infant is going to do poorly and will have a poor outcome, whether it be death before discharge or survival with severe neurodevelopmental impairment. And so 
we've sort of found more and more that even though we talk about the appearance of the infant at birth, how mature do they seem, how active are they, all of that stuff, that spur of the moment decision making, really has limited use when you're actually looking at prediction. And so there's a whole body of literature now looking at what factors can we investigate when the babies are actually in the intensive care unit that will help us to better predict what their outcome is going to be instead of just relying on our physical exam at birth in the delivery room. And so your question is an interesting one because a lot of people really rely on this appearance of the baby in the physical exam at birth in the delivery room and use, try to use that information to predict what the future will hold. And again, you know, the AAP and, the, and ACOG also sort of mentioned this physical exam in their guidelines, but it really, I think, is not as useful as we would hope that it could be. And I think that there are a lot of other factors and, and the, the more time that we have to sort of assess the babies over the first 48 to 72 hours is actually a little bit more helpful in predicting what their final outcome will be. Can you describe some of the unique findings or trends that you discovered in surveys regarding the case scenarios? Mm -hmm. We posed this, the case scenarios to the survey respondents, and essentially the scenarios were babies of the same gestational age between 22 and 26 weeks, and we varied factors such as birth weight, whether the infant was a product of a spontaneous pregnancy or an in vitro fertilization, and also whether the parents desired resuscitation or just were opting for comfort care. And some of the trends that we found in the answers to these questions were expected. So, for example, an infant that was small for gestational age was significantly less likely to be resuscitated as opposed to an appropriate for gestational age infant. And likewise, if the parents desired resuscitation, the respondents were more likely to say that they would resuscitate that infant um, as opposed to if the parents did not wish the baby to be resuscitated. So those were sort of expected. What was surprising was that there was really no difference between whether the baby was a male or a female even though we know from clinical data that females tend to be better and, you know, we talk clinically all the time, you know, that when we counsel parents even, you know, if it's a female infant, those infants tend to do better. But it, when you ask neonatologists whether that really plays a role in whether or not they would resuscitate an infant, all other factors being the same, it did not, which we thought was quite interesting. Another factor that was interesting was whether the infant was a product of a spontaneous pregnancy versus an in vitro fertilization. There is some literature talking about the quote-unquote precious pregnancy, the 42-year-old woman who has gone through five cycles of, of in vitro fertilization, and this is her one chance to have an infant. Surprisingly, that, at least for what neonatologists will answer as what they think they will do in a situation that in vitro fertilization didn't play a role versus a spontaneous pregnancy, which I found a little surprising because I thought that even though we try to be maybe as neutral as possible and things like that, I thought that maybe there would be some subconscious factor playing a role in that and maybe the, the babies who are products of IVF would have a higher rate of resuscitation, but they really didn't, which was surprising and also a little refreshing in that we will treat all pregnancies equal and use factors more so as what the parents desire. 
or you know an objective factor like the the birth rate of a baby as opposed to some of these other things. Can you discuss the findings of the resuscitation practices in your survey? Is they related to individual states' policy and laws regarding perivariable care and termination of pregnancy? That was actually one of our most interesting findings, and really the first time that that's really been delineated in the literature looking at neonatal resuscitation. So geographical variation in medical practice is something that has been described in adult literature, things such as breast cancer treatments of localized breast cancer, myocardial infarction treatments, things such as Medicare utilization um, and preventative services. So it's a phenomenon that's well known in certain geographical areas. There'll be one practice pattern that differs significantly from another geographical area within the United States. And so we wanted to see if that phenomenon also held true with neonatal resuscitation, being that, like we said before, neonatal resuscitation at periviability is something that's sort of individualized and left up to caregivers in conjunction with parents. And so one could imagine that there would be a variety of practice patterns depending on what location of the country you live in. Additionally, the federal government has stayed out of any definitions of viability, the general limitations on elective terminations that occur throughout the country, and they've left it up to the states. And because of that, the law also varies from state to state within the United States regarding both definitions of human viability that are actually in the statutes and also you know, limitations on when a woman would be able to obtain an elective termination of pregnancy. And so one of our hypotheses was also, you know, in addition to this phenomenon that we know in general medical culture about variations in practice, that there could, at least in this situation where we're talking about viability and fetuses and infants, and it's a very sort of emotionally charged topic from both a medical standpoint but also a policy standpoint when you talk about elective terminations and things like that, if those laws were also playing a role in what goes on in the hospital when we're talking about a premature delivery. And so what we found was that indeed there is wide variability in what practitioners are doing based on where they are geographically, where they're practicing medicine. And these, this variability was actually not associated with other demographic factors, so things like age of the practitioner, whether they were practicing in an academic center versus a community hospital, what their religion was. And so the only thing that we can really say was affecting what people were saying as far as what gestational age they were comfortable resuscitating really was their geography. And so, for example, when we asked people you know, what was the youngest age that they would be willing to resuscitate if the parents really wanted them to despite counseling, Basically, the Northeast New England and the Pacific states, California, Oregon, Washington, had very little of any people who were willing to say that they would resuscitate a 22-week gestation infant if the parents wanted them to, which differs significantly from states in the Midwest where we were seeing rates of 19 and 22 percent of people who said, yeah, I would resuscitate a 22-weeker if the parents asked me to. And so that brings up an interesting question that if when we look at survival rates and things like that, the 
National Institute for Child Health and Human Development, the NICHD, has put out every few years the current survival rates of infants at various gestational ages. And the last paper that they put out in 2010 said that 6% of 22-week infants were surviving overall through their 16 centers, which are all over the country. But if you looked a little bit closer at their data, you saw that actually they depending on what center they were looking at, the survival rate was anywhere from 0% to 50%. And so is that because one center has better resources than another? Or is that because providers are willing to accede to parents when they ask a provider to attempt a resuscitation on their very viable infant? And so the question becomes, is this the way that things should be? Or is there something that needs to be looked at further? And do we need to sort of not necessarily standardizing everything? Because again, every baby is different, every family is different. The resources that an individual institution has at its disposal is also variable. But is it acceptable to say that because institution A does not want to resuscitate a 22-weeker, but across the street institution B will, is that the most ethically appropriate stance that we should be taking for this? Or is there something more that we can maybe do for these families and these infants? Also, on the other side of the coin, if a family does not want their infant resuscitated, if they are at hospital A, do they get that choice? Or if they're at hospital B, do they not? Is that something that we should be discussing a little bit more in our general literature and also in the clinical realm as well? And so that was, again, the first time that that has sort of been shown in neonatal resuscitation literature. And I think it's something that needs to be investigated a lot more also to sort of see what other factors are playing a role in this. Is it just local culture and you know what your colleagues are doing? Or is it being influenced by institutions or different policies in certain areas of the country and things like that? Or patient culture could certainly influence. Influence, correct, from, correct. From one exactly. region to another. Exactly. And then the other thing that we found, which was very interesting as well, is you know we asked the scenarios about just you know a woman comes in in labor and premature labor at this gestational age and this weight. What is the likelihood that you would resuscitate <coughs> that infant? And then we asked a, a separate scenario, saying in according to the state statutes, there are. I think the last number now was uh, 19 states in the United States who there are uh, actually laws on the books or statutes on the books saying that if a woman is to have a termination and the obstetrician believes that there is a chance that this infant may be viable, it is required that another practice provider be present in the procedure whose sole purpose of being present is to evaluate the fetus after the procedure, and if that provider thinks that there is a chance that this fetus is viable, that provider has a right, not an obligation, but a right to intervene and provide medical resuscitation for that fetus. And so our question was to survey respondents, imagine that you are the provider in this situation. Here are five fetuses at either 22 weeks or 23 weeks. Here are their birth weights what is the likelihood that you think that you might want to attempt resuscitation on, on these fetuses? And in this case, we found that there were actually differences in whether people said that they would attempt a resuscitation or not based on 
their religion. So people who were active Christians, Catholic, and active Muslims were more likely to say that they would probably attempt a resuscitation on a larger and slightly older fetus as opposed to people who were considered themselves atheists or agnostic. And also people who self-identified as pro-life were more likely to say that they would attempt resuscitation in, in a number of the fetuses that we asked about as far as the elective termination scenarios when compared to people who self-identified as pro-choice. And the interesting part about that is that when we went back and looked at the scenarios of just the woman coming in in premature labor, would you resuscitate or not, those differences weren't there. So in other words, if a woman presented at 23 weeks and the parents did not wish resuscitation, there was no difference between respondents' answers about whether or not they were resuscitated, either based on religion or based on their self-reported views on elective termination. But when you ask about that same 23-week fetus, but now it's, a, it's an elective termination, now we found these differences. And so I don't think that people are actively sort of thinking about this, but I think that our own personal either moral or religious beliefs do or may come into play in certain clinical scenarios. And that's something that has been shown in other literature, things such as views on terminal sedation, views on referring for an abortion procedure after failed contraception, or pre uh, prescribing birth control. And so all of these sort of emotionally charged social issues have been found to be influenced in some part by providers' moral and religious beliefs, and we, we found that reflected here in our data as well in certain scenarios. When you were creating the, the surveys, did you ask if institutions had predetermined protocols for how they approached peri-viable? And was there, there differences, or were you able to look at differences in those programs that had an agreed-upon approach to management of peri-viable, or if it's just based on sort of a case-by-case -case mm -hmm. kind of basis? Mm -hmm. Uh, so we didn't ask that question directly, but one question that we did ask respondents was whether they had ever had to either resuscitate an infant or withhold care from an infant in objection to their own beliefs just because of either their institution policy or a group clinical consensus. And actually 21% of our respondents said that they had experienced that in the past. And so it's research that, uh, that needs to be looked at a little bit closer, but there does seem to be some effect of either institutional policy or even a group clinical consensus, whether it be official or unofficial, that is also playing a role in just general delivery room decision making. And that's something that has not been addressed by you know either the AAP or ACOG in their guidelines and their policy statements. But I think it's a very, it could be a very real phenomenon and, and it's something that definitely needs to be investigated further. Your study investigated pediatricians' responses. Clearly those are the providers who are responsible in the delivery room. How would you suggest obstetricians use this information as uh, they're often the ones involved in the initial consultation of patients at risk for pre-viable deliveries and oftentimes sort of set, uh, you know, may, may play a role in setting the tone? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as far as what obstetricians can take away from this is that 
yes, there is variability that exists. I think when counseling parents and, and mothers who are expecting a periviable birth, the important thing is to make sure that you're collaborating with your pediatricians, your neonatal partners, so that everybody's working in conjunction and there's one message given to the parents and the decisions and the information is sort of given in concert with all the parties that are involved. And I think it's difficult you know, for an obstetrician to know. There's nothing that says every 23-week infant should be resuscitated and I think that's appropriate that there is no message like that because, again, every baby is different, every family is different, every hospital has different resources. And so I think on the front line, on the ground, obstetricians and pediatricians should be working in concert with what they have at their disposal as far as their institution to be able to provide the best care, whether it be aggressive, active resuscitation or comfort care, because regions also have different patient cultures and hospitals also have different outcome statistics within their own NICUs, and so it's important to know locally what is the normal care in order to be able to more appropriately counsel patients. What follow-up investigations do you think can expand on the data from this study, or what future investigations are you planning or undertaking now? Well, I think as we mentioned a little bit earlier, looking at more of the effects of institutional policy or group clinical consensus or local culture and looking at the influences of those sort of higher factors on more individual provider decision making would be something that is important to look at because a lot of the time if an institution has a policy per se about who should be resuscitated or not or who should be offered resuscitation or not, many of these cutoffs are sort of arbitrary. You know, you, for example, you have a mother who comes in at 22 weeks and six days, and if your normative practice is not resuscitate an infant or not offer resuscitation on an infant who's less than 23 and zero, is that appropriate? We know that dating is not always accurate. It could be off by a couple of days. It could be off by as much as a week. And so do these policies exist? Do these clinical consensus exist? And are they appropriate or are they sort of hindering what the AEP and ACOG sort of hope would be the best approach to these practices, looking at parental desires in conjunction with cultural factors and local NICU factors and, and medical judgment, clinical judgment, things like that. Um, so that's one area of research that needs a lot more investigation. The other is really trying to delve into why do these geographical variations exist? Is it something that is being taught? So is it coming from fellowships? And is it being taught to young neonatologists and young maternal fetal medicine providers? And that is, is it something that they carry on with them? Is it something that in certain cultures or certain uh, religious groups, is it affecting that decision-making more than others? Or is it just the patient environment that you work in? Are you in one hospital where the vast majority of the patients that you see really want aggressive or active attempts at resuscitation versus another hospital on the other side of town where the, the patients may overall not opt for an aggressive attempt at resuscitation at a 22 or 23-week infant. And so is it, is it more of patient factors that are sort of playing a role in this variation? I think 
those questions are questions that need to be answered if we are really to look at the phenomenon and really have a nice ethical discussion about is this the way that things should be done or is there a better way. I think that you can't say yay or nay to that question unless you know really what is playing a role in these differences and these geographical variations, whether it's personal factors, patient factors, institutional factors. Certainly. And it certainly seems that exploring these will help ensure that patient expectations and physician expectations all are in concordance mm -hmm. with each other yes. in these difficult situations. Yes, exactly. Dr. Arguez, is there anything I didn't ask or that you really wanted to highlight? I think one thing actually that I didn't quite delve into, which was interesting, was when we looked at the geographical variation by not only by region of the United States, but also then by individual state, to see if there was correlation with that actual state statute, we found that there was no correlation. And so our question as to whether or not people's resuscitation practices were being affected by their local state laws actually did not seem to play out the way that we thought it would. And so it seems like each state, again, has their own definition of viability and their own limitation on elective termination of pregnancy. But when it comes to premature delivery, those laws and definitions do not seem to be playing a role on an individual provider level, which was also very interesting. Dr. Arzuega, thank you very much for your great manuscript and for taking the opportunity to discuss your study with us. And we, of course, wish you success in your future investigations. Thank you, and thank you again for allowing me to discuss my paper with you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.